age 12 and over will be eligible for vaccination from September 13. While this is great news for parents with children over 12, it's left many parents of young children concerned. After all, what happens to unvaccinated kids when we open up? And when they go back to school and childcare, is there a plan for managing the inevitable outbreaks? Here to answer some of the most common questions about kids and COVID are Jordana Hunter, Education Program Director, and Annika Stobart, Associate with Grattan's Health Program. Welcome to both of you. Great to be here, Grattan. Thanks for having us. So, Jordana, the pandemic has obviously turned everyone's lives upside down since the start of last year. What has the impact been on kids so far? Yeah, Kat, I mean, that really is a question that we're all um, grappling with at the moment. I think, you know, so far the impact on children in Australia, thankfully, in many ways, has primarily been from the lockdowns themselves rather than from the virus. You know, without a doubt, the biggest thing that kids have had to endure, I think, has been those lockdown conditions, which have meant the closure of schools and also community sport, childcare, playgrounds, all of those things that children are routinely engaged in um, that give them a sense of community and purpose in their own lives. Um, Kids around the country have been missing out on those. Um, And school is really the big one there. So, you know, in 2020, as we know, um, children around Australia missed around six to nine weeks of school, um, with the exception of Melbourne, where children, some children missed up to 22 weeks of face-to-face school. Uh, That's more than half of of the schooling uh, time uh, normally in any given year. And this year, as we've seen um, in Melbourne and Sydney, children look likely to miss another term and a half of school probably um, before they get back to the classroom. So this is a big disruption for children. And, you know, schools are really an essential service. They're really a core part of, of the lives of children. It goes to, to learning issues, obviously, but also issues around social development. And it's really particularly important for those children from, you know, more disadvantaged or, or more vulnerable backgrounds. Um, it can be a really important source of stability and routine for those children. So I think, you know, in terms of those COVID impacts uh, from lockdown, um, you know, they they span that whole spectrum of academic to social health, mental well-being, and that kind of critical uh, social development and friendships. And finally, um, you know, obviously schools are also essential to families. Um, As as parents who are listening to the podcast uh, can can attest, no doubt, um, having those kids at school Monday to Friday is really critical to parents getting things done and uh, you know I put my hand up here as as a parent with three school-aged children and uh, you know school school is an essential part of how we organize family life. I'm sure many of the parents listening here today would agree with you wholeheartedly. So I want to ask you about the NAPLAN results because they came through recently and the picture was actually pretty good. I think it wasn't what we were expecting. Does this mean that everything's okay after all these lockdowns? You know, I approach those NAPLAN results with a sense of, I guess, cautious relief. Um, So, you know, without a doubt, there was a sense of relief uh, that learning on the whole held up fairly well across the country. Uh, Those NAPLAN results suggest kids in 2021 in May did about uh, the same as they did on average in May of 2019 when the last NAPLAN tests were conducted. And I think that's, you know, that's good news given how much um, learning was disrupted last year. But I guess my sense of relief is tempered by a degree of of caution um, for a number of reasons. 
NAPLAN is a really great test of foundational literacy and numeracy skills for children in years three, five, seven, and nine. So those NAPLAN tests don't give us a read on how children went uh, with their learning if they were in those earlier year levels or if they're in those later year levels. It doesn't tell us much about academic skills outside literacy and numeracy, and it certainly doesn't help us understand the impact of, you know, those social elements of the disruption on children. It also, those headline results don't let us really unpack what those differential impacts may have been. So they're really just averages that we know now, and we're going to have to wait until the full data set is released towards the end of the year to understand the impact on disadvantaged kids. And just lastly, I'd say, you know, if we look at the emerging evidence internationally, uh, there's some fairly strong evidence that, that kids around the world have had a fairly significant hit to their learning, particularly those disadvantaged kids. Um, there's some studies out of the Netherlands, for example, that suggest learning really did stall there uh, during those periods of lockdown. And a recent study uh, from Ohio in the United States that suggested primary school students had taken a big hit on their learning um, and, and the disadvantaged uh, black children in those um, in that system suffered a lot more. So I think we need to, um, you know, just, just adopt a bit of a wait and see approach with NAPLAN, just wait for the full data set to be released. And we also need to get a read on what the current impacts have been for kids from, from the lockdowns in 2021. Absolutely. And we will certainly touch base with you again when those second more detailed results come out later this year. So Annika, I want to talk to you about some of the health impacts for kids. Firstly, for children 12 and over, with vaccines imminently available, how soon can we expect to get adolescents vaccinated? Yeah, so the good news is for adolescents 12 and above, uh, the Pfizer jab has just become available to them. So I think from September 13, which is the day that we're recording this podcast, um, they can make a booking for that age group, which is Good news. Moderna, so the other vaccine uh, that has also been approved by the TGA for kids 12 and above, uh, was just approved recently, but we don't know exactly when uh, that age group will be able to book in for those vaccines. Uh, but the good news is that we're, we're getting somewhere with this age group. But I guess the real question is then um, how quickly can we get children in this group vaccinated? And as we know, we've experienced a lot of supply issues with the vaccines to date. So as we're getting more vaccines now uh, available to people, uh, it'll be it'll get faster for children to be able to access it. And we really hope, we, we think that the government should be really ambitious about uh, rolling out vaccines to children. Currently, what the Commonwealth government says is they expect children will have access to vaccines in 2021. We, it's a bit vague. Uh, we think they should be more ambitious and that state governments you know, should really take a leading role here and say, actually, we're going to get two doses to children before the end of the year so that children in secondary schools, particularly in New South Wales and you know, Victoria, where ch schools are currently closed, uh, schools can go back to normal by the start of the year or close to normal as possible so that children are protected from COVID. And we'll talk about that in a minute, um, looking at the reopening plans for schools. I want to go to that big question that's on the lips of every parent with a child under 12. What about these kids? I mean, the number one question is when can children under 12 be vaccinated? What can you tell us about this, Annika? It's a difficult question and I can understand that, um, you know, parents are concerned about this and uh, you know, unfortunately, the timeline is a bit unclear. Uh, it really just depends on uh, what's going on with the studies uh, and, and the timeline for the kind of approvals for vaccines. 
Uh, so currently, Moderna and Pfizer are undertaking clinical trials for children aged between 5 and 11 years. And uh, Pfizer expects that they'll be able to submit the results of their studies to the FDA in the US in late September. And then it will take about a month or so for the FDA to consider it. And then that's, I guess, the US process. But soon after, um, we expect that also then be approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia. So the the kind of equivalent body to the US, FDA, uh, and then that could be made available uh, to that age group. But it just depends on yeah how quickly we can get the results of these studies. These studies are, are, are quite large and they've got a big sample size to make sure that you know they can be really confident that it's safe for children. Based on those timelines, we, we won't have vaccines available necessarily for that age group this year. It'll be more next year and then it will take also a little while for it to be rolled out to that age group. Another point here for those that are under five, they're also then taking doing studies for uh, children six months and older. Older, but that'll be like another round of studies that will have has a bit of a longer timeline. So that's something that will need to be considered down the track. So really it is a matter of watching the studies, waiting and see, and I'm sure there will be news on that in the new year. One of the other big questions for parents is what does the research say so far on how Delta affects children? I mean, I'm mindful that, you know, this is a new variant. We don't necessarily have a heap of research on it, but is there research out there now that tells us what's going on here? It's really interesting, particularly in these recent uh, Delta outbreaks in Victoria and New South Wales. And we also see stories from overseas where a lot of children are getting uh, infected by COVID. I think the statistics currently are that 30% of cases in New South Wales and Victoria are in people under 20. That's quite a high figure, but it doesn't mean that Delta is more likely to infect or more infectious for children or has worse outcomes for children. It's just that Delta is more of an infectious disease and so we're seeing more cases and because adults are more adults are vaccinated in the community, we're going to see more cases in children that aren't vaccinated. Despite seeing a lot of infections in children, luckily COVID is a much milder disease in children than adults. And this has remained consistent with Delta. We've seen hospitalisation rates in Australia in 2021 about 1% to 3% for positive cases in children, which is uh, very low. There is still a risk. And we've also seen that children and young people also have long COVID symptoms. So these are ongoing symptoms eight to 15 weeks after the infection and and having illness that they see, for example, headaches and tiredness. Uh, And the studies kind of vary in their findings and we haven't really understood what that is in the case for Delta, but a recent study showed that about 15% of children infected by COVID had symptoms 15 weeks after infection. This is a preprint study though, so we just have to keep an eye on it, but it just shows that there is uh, a risk here for children, particularly to have ongoing symptoms, even if they might not have very severe illness. I can really understand why parents are so concerned at the moment because there's so many questions that are unanswered about the Delta variant. Why is it important to vaccinate children? We usually think about this around three main points. So the first point is that vaccination protects you against illness, and that's the same for kids. Uh, yes, the incidence of severe illness is are very low for children. As I said, there is still a risk. So the uh, the advice is um, the moment for the vaccination for 12 and above that it's uh, better to get vaccinated than not to be vaccinated to pre- prevent against this risk. The second point is that uh, vaccination also has the benefit, as with adults as well, every vaccination 
reduces the transmission in the community. Uh, and so children being vaccinated will help the whole community to be protected. And then the third point, really, which is something we'll go more into now, is around children and the return to schools. The role of vaccinations in schools is really important. We've seen, as Jordana explained earlier, the impact on children and not being able to attend school is is a big problem. So if we get children vaccinated, that means that we'll have a lower likelihood of cases occurring in children and then occurring at school and putting other kids at risk. So there's a real benefit there as well. And then there's also a risk that if COVID gets into a school, uh, it'll spread quite rapidly, especially if you have a lot of unvaccinated children. So a recent study in the US looking at the Delta variant showed that without interventions like having testing or masks or density limits at schools, you know, most students in a school setting, if they're unvaccinated, would be infected with the one, within one semester alone. Vaccination would really change that. And now with children 12 and above uh, having access to vaccines, uh, we can pre- prevent that from happening in secondary schools. But we'll need to do other things to protect uh, children in primary schools and in childcare settings. And that's quite a nice segue into returning to talk to you, Jordana, about how we can protect children from getting COVID, especially when school returns. How can we manage a return to school and childcare in a way that protects the youngest people once we do hit those opening up targets? Yeah, well, look, this is really the question that um, every education department around the country is uh, is grappling with at the moment, um, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria and the ACT where Currently, um, schools are closed uh, for for the bulk of children, at least in those metro areas. Community vaccination rates really are the number one driver here to getting schools reopened safely. So, you know, the top priority has got to be around driving up those vaccination rates in the broader community. So there tend to be more outbreaks in schools when uh, community uh, infection rates are high. So that that comes through pretty clearly in the evidence. So driving up those community vaccination rates is really critical to reducing the chance of the virus entering into a school site. But obviously there are other things we can do to protect schools and to get schools to reopen as safely as possible and things we can do to drive transmission down in schools. And we're really fortunate in some ways in Australia in that we're able to look overseas at what school systems around the world are doing and how they're managing this risk. Um, In the UK, for example, in mid June, around 15% of children uh, in in England uh, were away from school that week because they were either infected with COVID or they were a close contact of another child infected with COVID in the school or the school itself was closed down. So you can imagine the challenges that presents to schools of having, you know, 15% of the population, the school population potentially at home, basically under quarantine requirements. Um, So, you know, we do need to take a multi-layered approach to keeping schools um, as protected as possible, um, as well as high levels of vaccination within the broader community. Vaccinated school staff and teachers is really critical. So New South Wales has actually moved to uh, mandate vaccinations for school staff, which will obviously have a big impact on the, the level of protection in those school settings. And also, as Annika outlined, you know, supporting children to be vaccinated when a safe vaccine is is available. 
A real positive I think we've seen in Victoria recently is a move to set up vaccination hubs for secondary schools, particularly in areas where community vaccination rates are lagging. I think this is a really important point because, you know, it's not enough just to say one group has access to the vaccine. What we're seeing is that governments really need to take proactive steps to make it as easy as possible for those groups to be vaccinated as quickly as possible. So I am really happy to see those vaccination hubs being opened up up in Victoria and it'd be great to see other jurisdictions uh, outside of, you know, those on the eastern seaboard taking that step as well. There are other things that we can also do um, that, that can improve the resilience of schools. So I think testing is likely to play a really key role. Uh, we haven't done so much of that yet in Australia and I think we really need to get our skates on to plan the logistics around regular testing of children. So we're seeing in the US and the UK plans to test every student um, in the case of the LA district uh, once a week. That's over 600,000 students who will be tested for COVID once a week. And the idea behind that is that you'll pick up uh, cases of virus quickly and you'll be able to quarantine kids quickly and stop an outbreak from taking hold in a school setting. And in the longer term, this will mean more school for more kids more of the time. The other big one is, is this one around ventilation. So actually, there's been quite a few studies in Australia now that suggest ventilation and air quality in our classrooms is not great, um, which is which is a bit worrying because, you know, good air quality is good for, for good learning, um, you know, whether or not it's during a pandemic or a bushfire or any other, any other time. Um, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done with ventilation and improving air quality in schools. Uh, now's the time to do it for those school uh, schools and jurisdictions that aren't currently grappling with outbreaks in Australia at the moment, um, you know, South Australia, Western Australia, Queensland, Northern Territory, they've got a really good opportunity now to get into classrooms when kids are at school and test air quality and do what they need to do to improve it. It might be air filtration systems, HEPA filters, for example, can make a big difference. A little bit harder to do that in Victoria and New South Wales, but both jurisdictions have said that they're going to be testing air quality when kids come back and they're going to be moving to improve improve um, filter systems. So I think that's good news as well. Lastly, just obviously issues around masks. Um, mask wearing is really important. It is hard in the younger year levels, but it has been shown to reduce the risk of transmission. And there's other ways that schools can keep cohorts separate. So it might be staggered lunchtime, staggered start times, uh, just not letting different classes mix too much with each other. It's going to take all of these different approaches, I think, to really keep a lid on transmission in schools. And, and we really do need to plan now because once we get kids back, um, we're going to need to be ready to go with having these measures in place. Yeah, and shout out to all the incredible educators who have been keeping this going for so long and doing such an amazing job. So New South Wales is planning to return students to the classroom in Greater Sydney from October 25th. And students in most of regional Victoria are heading back to school now, although there still hasn't been an announcement yet about when Melbourne students will head back. Is this inviting an outbreak in schools? And what about other states? We know that schools have been a really big uh, worry for public health um, decision makers. Um, you know, when kids go back to school, um, large numbers of adults and children move around the state. And there's, you know, when you have large numbers of people moving around, the risk of transmission is obviously higher. So, you know, I think that we need to um, 
grapple, I guess, with the risks and benefits of opening schools. Uh, New South Wales' plan is based around um, their expectation of when they will hit that 70% community vaccination rate. And, you know, I think their hope is that once they get to that level, they'll be able to have schools reopening safely. We don't have a plan yet for schools in Melbourne, but as you say, it is really great to see that kids in regional Victoria are back at school from, from this week, which is, is really fabulous and I think a really important move given uh, the lower rates of, of transmission in those areas. We do need to see a plan for Victoria. I think parents need to, to be able to get their heads around when kids will be back. Kids need to have a sense of hope that there is a, a date on which they can hope to go back. You know, we are moving into a new phase of the pandemic and it really is around managing those different risks and benefits, the costs and benefits of different settings and getting kids back to school is, is a really important um, benefit, driver of benefits for children's lives and for families' lives and, and for broader community outcomes as well. So, Jordana, what practical things do governments need to be doing right now to manage this long-term risk of school closures? Yeah, look, I think there's a few things. So I think um, very much keep pushing that vaccination, um, those vaccination levels in communities, getting teachers and all educators in early childhood education settings, staff in schools, getting everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible, a really targeted outreach strategy with vaccination for children as supply uh, eases and, and people can uh, access the vaccine more, more quickly and making sure that kids in areas where perhaps those community vaccination rates are a little bit lower, we're making sure those kids are getting the vaccination when they can. Doing those audits of, of ventilation levels and air quality in classrooms as quickly as possible is key, I think. Um, and and that communications piece will be really essential as well. So making sure that um, parents and, and all people in a school community understand the steps that are being taken to reopen schools safely. And, you know, lastly, I think there will be some logistical challenges to manage around having some kids in face-to-face learning and some possibly in quarantine arrangements. Uh, you know, if there is an outbreak in a school, that, that could be quite challenging for principals to manage and, and teachers to manage. So some forward thinking around that is, is really important. And just lastly, you know, when our kids do go back um, in, in Victoria and New South Wales and the ACT, you know, educators uh, need to be supported to to really understand well where kids are at with their learning and where they're at with their social emotional um, responses to periods of lockdown. Um, so I'd really like to see some, um, you know, really good support for teachers uh, so that they can play the role that they're going to need to to help kids get back on track um, as quickly as possible. Thank you so much, Jordana and Annika. I'm sure some of our listeners have been reassured by this conversation today. If you'd like to engage more with this topic or talk to us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Grutton Inst and on all other social media platforms at Grattan Institute. Likewise, you can follow our coronavirus coverage for free on our website at grattan.edu.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please follow us on your favourite podcasting app. Take care, especially if you are in lockdown like us. And thank you so much for listening.